Welcome to Technically Spiritual, a podcast that explores how technology impacts the way we think, feel, and act. We look to both ancient wisdom and psychology to understand how to nurture our minds, bodies, and souls today. We strive to integrate our spiritual selves into our digital world to create peace in our minds and on our planet. I'm your host, Prayer Namanchanda. everyone. Welcome to Technically Spiritual. My name is Prerna. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Before we get started on today's episode, I'd like to remind you to please visit technicallyspiritual.com. On the website, you'll find the links to our show notes for this episode as well as every episode. You can also sign up for the newsletter where you'll receive practical tips for living mindfully in a digital age. And if you're part of a team or an organization who's looking for a new way of implementing well-being programs at work that actually do work, check out our corporate services. It's technicallyspiritual.com slash corporate dash services. If you want more information, send us a note through the contact page or simply DM us on Instagram at technically.spiritual and we'll point you in the right direction. All right. And now for today's episode, I interviewed Larissa May, otherwise known as Lars. Lars is a mental health advocate and founder of Half the Story. It's a globally recognized digital wellness nonprofit on a mission to empower the next generation's relationship with technology through advocacy, education, research and international events like the Global Day of Unplugging. Lars began her journey as a student at Vanderbilt University working in fashion. During her senior year, she suffered a dark battle with depression and experienced a light bulb moment, realizing how social media was negatively impacting her life. With $250 from her dorm room, she set out on a mission to help others create more meaningful connections through social storytelling, thus launching Half the Story. Within two years, Half the Story grew into a globally recognized movement, pioneering a nationwide conversation about the importance of digital well-being for youth through educational resources and internationally recognized events. Half the Story has become a leading youth 501c3, receiving more than 30,000 stories of youth relating to the cause from 99 countries around the world. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Without further ado, here's the interview with Larissa May. Hello, Larissa May. Lars, it's so good to be with you. Welcome to Technically Spiritual. Thank you so much for hosting me. This is such a treat and I can't wait to learn more about you as well as share my own story. I'm so excited. We have so much in common. Um, Obviously a shared passion for digital well-being, but before we get like deep and heavy into all the things, something that makes me really happy about what I see you posting is pictures of your dog. (laughs) And I have a dog too, who I'm obsessed with. So I just wanted to learn a little bit more about your dog. What do you love about him? Well, I'm sure you'll hear him in the background, eating, snorting, all of the above. Um, I always say that dogs are our little superheroes. Uh, my dog is a pug. His name is Poncho. He is definitely an emotional support dog, never leaves my side, but also happens to be the half the story mascot. So we got him three years ago and he's just been such a 
a light and little munchkin that we love. <laughs> Our magical mushroom I, is what we call him. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree. They, they really are magic. I'm like, these creatures were like just created to bring us so much joy, I think. Um, and I love them. So. Absolutely. They're our, our most loyal friends, right? Yes. Yep. And they're oh, cutie. Hi. <laughs> Adorable. <laughs> All right. Um, let's dive into the heavy stuff a little bit. <laughs> Not heavy, but you know, the deep stuff. I think that your story is incredible. And I think so many of us can relate to having having an experience of just getting really pulled deeply into like the black hole that can be the internet and social media specifically, um, that you really, you know, you end up losing your sense of self or identity. Can you tell us what that experience was like for you and how you found your way back? Absolutely. Thank you so much for asking. Uh, in other words, the other half of the story that led me here today Uh, Well, I guess first I'd like to say that I think the brightest ideas sometimes come out of the darkest moments in our life. And these moments or obstacles that we have are opportunities for us to respond. And for me, when I hit my darkest moment, I had to make a hard decision about the role that I wanted to play in technology and in society uh, to change the narrative and the story that was written for me and is unfortunately the story that millions of young people around the world have as well. And so to take you back in time, believe it or not, almost seven years ago, I was a sophomore in college and I loved social media. I thought it was one of the most powerful tools of our generation in so many ways, because we could build a story, we could build a platform, we could make money off of it. Uh, we could, it was a way to be an expert at a young age. And I always wanted to have a, a seat at the table and social media was my ability to do that through working with brands and also consulting. However, social media paired with my mental illness, uh, created a very complex situation. And I became hooked to social media. Literally, it was an addiction. Uh, Whenever I was walking or on a treadmill or doing something, I was always thinking about my phone or my social media followers. And it became the thing that consumed my mind um, more than anything else. I was spending around 12 hours a day on the platform. And the more that I fell into this digital obsession, the more I dove into this virtual world, the more disconnected I became from my physical world. And so with that, I really had to start asking hard questions and it led to, you know, basically me getting dragged across campus by my RA who saw that I was experiencing suicidal ideation. And, um, I got, I got into the psych ward and they asked me about drug, sex, alcohol, and people. And they gave me antidepressants, which was great. All part of protocol. And then I stepped away and went back out into the world and, you know, the only thing that they didn't ask me about was the drug that was consuming me more than anything else. And that was the drug in my pocket, uh, my device. It was social media. And so I had this moment of just why, why is a society, are we not asking the hard questions about this? And why are we so quick to move forward and engage in this thing without asking the role that it's playing in our, you know, in our social world, in our environmental world, but also in our, our mental health. And that became the biggest question that I wanted to answer. And so when I was in college, I decided I can either be a part of this problem or I can be consumed by this problem or I can help solve the problem. And so I decided to shut down my fashion blog and basically 
got a bunch of stickers with half the story, which was that light bulb moment for me that social media is only half the story. Why don't we tell the other sides of it? And so it really started as a grassroots storytelling campaign. And that was the beginning of a very long road uh, that now has really put us at the forefront of the digital well-being movement globally and really on the side of action through policy research and education. It's an incredibly fascinating story. And the fact that you were able to sort of say like, this is a problem that not only I've experienced, but so many others are going through it and will continue to go through it if we don't like step up and do something to channel that all into an organization and have it become so successful and so helpful to folks is, is really admirable. So thank you right off the bat for the, for the work that you do. I know even for myself, it's been really, really helpful to follow along with half the story. Well, I always am so appreciative when, uh, when my work resonates or our work resonates, because I think so often you're like sitting here on the other side, just grinding and just wondering, you know, wondering what impact you're making in the world. And some days you see it and other days you hear it. And, you know, thank you so much for recognizing that. It means the world. I think if we can just help, if every person on the planet helped one person a day, we'd be in a much better place. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we, we have the hard space to help even more than one, but starting with one is a really good, a really good step. I want to talk about your, the demographic that you focus on, which is a little different from mine. I focus on adults mostly, but you focus on teens and youth. And I know like when I think back to that time, I mean, I'm a millennial, so I was in that weird space of like, I didn't grow up with the devices, but then they sort of came in like slightly later in life when I was like a little bit more developed, but not fully developed. Um, so I was like in that in-between space as a millennial. Um, but I think Gen Z and younger have had a much different experience, but just thinking back to myself and that at that time, being a teenager, um, finding community, figuring out who I am, was really difficult, like without social media even being a part of it. So can you talk a little bit about the psychology of our youth, particularly of teens? What new challenges are they facing now in our digital world? And why did you decide to focus on this specific demographic? Well, thank you so much for asking that. And a lot of people do ask that because this movement was born on a college campus. And when you step back and look at our youth development, our brains are, hold on, my dog is screaming. Let me just deal with him. And it's totally fine. <laughs> okay. So, okay. Why, why am I focusing on youth? So for us at Half the Story, we really focus on middle school and high school students. And the reason that we do that is because we want to be in the space of prevention rather than an intervention, which is a mm. lot of where the mental health work tends to focus, crisis intervention. And when you look at the digital well-being crisis, so first of all, uh, the suicide rates have amongst 10 to 24 year olds have left 60%, um, you know, between 2007 and 2018. And that was ultimately the period in which social media was adopted. And I find it really interesting. And I started looking at these graphs when I was doing a lot of, a lot of legislation and lobbying, you know, look, we're looking at adoption rates and we're looking at mental health issues amongst youth. Like this isn't a coincidence. And then you layer that in with the fact that the average American teenager is spending seven and a half hours on digital platforms. That's 30 years of your life to, to think that we wow. will, or the next generation be spending 30 years of their life behind their devices without 
any playbook, any education, support resources or safeguards to support that journey is, is quite frightening. And so we look at digital well-being as something that is important from a prevention side, but we also see it as a key component of digital equity. And digital equity is accomplished, which we believe is through digital inclusion, which ultimately looks at digital well-being as a key component of that. And so I guess that kind of begs the question of, well, why does this matter? And when you are young, basically until your late 20s, your brain is developing and you have your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that is the executive decision functioning. And then you have your limbic system, which is ultimately run by your emotions. And technology, what it's teaching young kids when they're relying on that emotional part of their brain is that it's actually telling their brain that these social media likes, all these things are these constant dopamine hits, and it's training them to believe that that is a form of affirmation, really solidifying that emotional part of themselves. But when they're young, they don't have that executive decision part of their brain, their prefrontal cortex, to check those emotions and to tell them that... Hey, this might not actually be, you know, the way that we should be feeling or doing. And so that's one piece. But also, you know, there was actually an interesting study um, from the team at Korea University that just came out and it showed, actually looked at the biochemical makeup of young people who are acclaiming addiction to the internet. And what it actually showed is that um, the the rate of GABA, which is one of the the neurotrans- neurochemicals in our brains was actually higher, um, you know, in a specific part of their brain for kids that were addicted to smartphones and the internet. And GABA is actually involved in the vision and motor control and the regulation of other brain functions, including anxiety. So in some, what that means is that the chemical in your brain that maintains your anxiety levels um, ultimately is more height has been proven to be more heightened as a result of you know, a complete addiction or immersion in technology. And so that's just like one of the ways it shows that man and device are becoming one and these devices are changing the way that our brains work. They're moving faster than our brains. And so that's why we think digital well-being is important. And we define it as an intersection of emotional health and digital habits. Mm. I, I love that. Um, and I want to I wanna unpack it a little bit more. When you're in community with these teens and with these kids, um, what, what comes up the most? Like, what, what do you think that they're really longing for emotionally? Do they have the tools to get there? And, and how are you providing some of those tools yeah. with both of those aspects? I'm glad that you asked that. I think we focus so much in our society and our culture on the digital habits piece, but we really fail to acknowledge you know, what is the opportunity cost of spending eight hours a day on these devices. And totally. what kids are really longing is they're missing sleep. They're missing human connection. They're missing physical mm-hmm. activity. They are uh, experiencing a lot of apathy, digital apathy, uh, which is inhibiting their ability to engage and play and imagination. And over time, you know, those compounding things contribute a lot to mental health. And, and technology is, in a lot of ways, the barrier between accessing those things and not. And so when working with these youth, you know, our point of view at Half the Story is really that not we're not an abstinence organization. Uh, we believe that not all technology is created equal. It's really just how you consume it. 
And so we want to provide the space first and foremost for teens to talk about the issues that they're experiencing, give them the micro interventions and tools that they need to help rewrite some of those stories in their own experience, but then also to bridge the gap between education and advocacy on a micro school level and a macro societal level by giving them the tools to do so. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's so powerful. And I like, I also can get really caught up in, in the digital habits piece, but I think, yeah, I think it's both. I I mean, the digital habits piece is important. Um, but I don't think, as you say, it's not the whole, the whole story. It's not the whole story. And I think that's why, you know, (laughs) even like, you know, stepping away from this, um, we just want kids to feel empowered and empowered to, let technology work for them rather than against them and to take those, mm-hmm. you know, take the steps to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things like when I'm having these conversations about digital well-being, you know, it's very easy to get caught up with all the negative things about social media, all the th- all the all the things that are going wrong with it. We sometimes forget to include some of the things that are really good about it or really good about this digital age, right. especially for young folks, you know, being seen in ways they haven't been seen because of these platforms to find community or find like-minded people with their same strange or quirky or interesting interests, right? Or to actually become activists and band together um, to advocate for change. So I think there are still some good aspects to it. What do you think about that? Do, do you see any yeah, others? I think I'm, I'm glad. I'm really glad that you brought that up. And that's like a big part of, you know, when we do work with schools and research like pre and post, we want to paint a more holistic picture of what digital well-being really looks like, because it's not all negative. And a lot of kids are using technology as a way to get emotional support. And a lot of uh, kids are using technology to fight for causes they believe in, to get exposure to other cultures and experiences and you know, education and all sorts of things. And so I think that we're actually doing ourselves a disservice as well as the next generation by having such a negative narrative around it, partially because it creates a lot of shame. Yeah. And when you create shame around things, it makes it very challenging to be able to, um, to actually innovate and think strategically about how we can problem solve. A thousand, a thousand percent. And this is, this is one of the things that I personally grappled with because I, especially while I was going through grad school, I had a really, actually, I really had a hard time focusing because I kept being pulled into my phone or seeing what people were doing on social media. And like, I I had a hard time sitting down and studying or writing a paper or the thing, like the amount of focus that it takes to go through a graduate program was really difficult. And I kept shaming myself like, oh, I just don't have enough. Um, you know, I I can't, I'm not good at focusing or, you know, I don't have, control or some of these things, but I was like, you know, some of it, yes. And, and some of it is like, I'm working, I I'm a meditation teacher, right? I'm working on training my attention through mindfulness. That's an active practice and process in my life. Some of it, some of it is like, these tools are designed to sort of go underneath consciousness and suck you in. So if you're, you know, if we're feeling like we're the only ones at fault, that just creates a lot of shame, which makes you feel sad, which makes you use the thing. And you're just like in this loop, right? Right. Exactly. And I think something that I've been talking about a lot recently is what you were kind of explaining is that the toggling tax tax, which is ultimately the tax psychologically. And even like, you know, productivity wise that 
we we have or we pay when we are switching from thing to thing. And I think that kids mm. are living in this world where toggling between different things and focuses and devices is something that feels normal. But in reality, you know, it really does take an emotional toll. And there's been a lot of research that shows that it actually increases your cortisol levels and your stress and all of those things. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I teach about this in, in my digital wellbeing seminars for adults in corporate spaces. And just like, sometimes they're blown away by just this, that, that, um, concept of task switching. Yeah. That's like you lose, like how much attention you just lose, by going to another tab or checking your phone in the middle of writing an email or whatever. And it's just like, it just ends up being part of life. But, you know, it, it brings something like the light bulb moment for me, especially I was doing some of this research in graduate school about, it was a little meta, right? I was, I was having an issue with my own attention. And I was also in a class called attention, awareness, and consciousness. <laughs> and oh I was studying God. about it, <laughs> attention. So it was like, it was super meta. Um, but one of the light bulb moments for me was a study that I read that showed that if we use our devices with mindfulness, like with intention and purpose, we are not as subject to all of those negative psychological consequences that we could have because we're sort of in the driver's seat of our experience. Right. Um, and I was like, this is great because you don't actually have to go into a cave and like throw your phone out the window or like never use it again. You can just sort of learn how to use it in a way that's a little bit more efficient. So can you talk about how you've used mindfulness and how you share mindfulness practices with the teens that you work with? Yeah, absolutely. So we do a lot of different things. So one is like, what is like little micro steps of mindfulness that you can take in your day in your life? Because small changes can move big doors, right? But then also we've created different content. So we actually made a meditation. It's like a tech body scan, uh, that actually gets you to look at, you know, what is your relationship to tech and what is it, what does it feel like to have a phone in front of your face and scrolling like while you're, you know, while you're, uh, <laughs> while you're doing your things in the world. And then what does it feel like to take that away and to really like actively listen, um, to your body, to your mind, to your spirit, and so we really like to lean in to show, don't tell, because sometimes when you say yoga or mindfulness to kids, they're like, ew, we're opting out of this. So mm, we just like yeah. to kind of show them like, what is the power of mindfulness and what does that feel like? So that hopefully they'll want to continue those practices. I think the other yeah. thing that we think about a lot is, and I talked about this earlier is play and like how in between tasks or meetings or virtual zoom, you know, do we find ways to get back into play? Is that like having a coloring book next to your computer? Is that just even having like a sketchbook with colorful markers, like whatever that is? Totally. And it's, it's like one of the pieces of mindfulness that I think is so key is just developing a relationship with your own emotions, yeah. your thoughts, your feelings in a non-judgmental way and recognizing like, Hey, like I keep reaching for the phone because what I'm actually seeking is validation or what I'm seeking is connection. And to then just apply that critical thinking lens, like, okay, is me going on this platform the in my best interest? Maybe it is. Like maybe that is the actual choice and you've made that choice and that's great. Active but maybe consumption. Texting someone or yeah, exactly. Or may, maybe it is drawing or painting or doing something fun or jumping or, you know, whatever. Um, and I think that is like really the key distinction. Like just getting ahead a little bit of your emotions rather than having the emotions or the device kind of 
pull you in right. by way of your emotions without your being aware or kind of managing them. Amen. And that is, <laughs> that is it. And I think like that's what we have to wake up to is like, we need to take, we need to get in the driver's seat of tech, not let tech be in the yeah. driver's seat of our life. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, I teach a lot in, in corporate spaces. Um, and I teach digital wellbeing seminars for adults or people working, especially online, communication, things like that. And I actually get a lot of parents in these classes that are really worried about their kids and their tech use. And I, I see this sort of uh, dichotomy almost. Like there's there's just so much nuance with like each kid and each family. And I feel like some of the older generations, even millennials or older millennials, Gen X, is it? Some of the older generations just have had a completely different world experience than some of the younger generations because the world has just changed so much. Oh, yeah. Completely different world. Yeah. And I feel like the adults are like blaming or shaming and like not actually addressing some of those difficult questions. So what advice do you have for parents who are attempting to raise their kids to have healthy relationships with their devices. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, right? Is like, first you can't expect your kid to have a healthy relationship if you don't yourself. So it starts Mm -hmm. with you. It starts with modeling. I think the second thing is it starts with storytelling and creating spaces for storytelling and conversation around technology rather than just shame. A lot of the Mm. kids that um, have conversations about tech with their parents, oftentimes it's negative or they're in a place where they feel shameful of, you know, using their technology. I think the third key piece is, is actually setting more boundaries and having more rules in place around screen-free time where the family can be together and authentically connect. One of the greatest things that we hear from our youth is that they actually wish their parents had more rules. And that's mm. something that even though our kids you know, they, they like to rebel and it seems like they don't want rules. They do. And I think you just have to, um, as adults and parents try to set more boundaries because kids want to know what they can rely on. And it really starts at a young age. Oh, for sure. I mean, even as adults, right. It's like, you need, you need a sense of grounding. You need a container, for things. Otherwise, if everything's just open and free, it's really hard to, to like know where you stop and the world begins, right? You, you have to have a sense of boundaries. Um, I think that's really, really important. And I think adults are maybe afraid to do that because they like, they don't want to be controlling or tell their kids what to do. But I think there's a way of doing it. That's like, this is a healthy thing that we as a family do. Like, these are the rules in our family. Like we don't, bring our devices to the table when we eat together. Like it's just, this is, we just want to have a time where we connect and it could be a small thing like that where it's not, you know, um, like a rule or you're grounded for this, but it's like, this is just what we do as a family. Like these are our family values. I love that. And that's it is like, how do we create values around technology? And I think that that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. At at the event that we um, met at a few months ago, I was super moved. I was actually moved to tears by that video that you showed um, a few at the California State Senate. So I want to talk about this a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah, of Um, course. It, like... 
Again, I feel like we're in this weird place where it's like, yes, we as citizens are responsible for our experience on our devices, but to some degree, you know, never before has there been a time where a certain industry has so much power with so little regulation. So I want to ask you about this. Like, what extent do you feel like, to what extent do you feel like the government is responsible for its citizens' mental health. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about your journey with the Social Media Duty to the Children Act? Yeah. Wow. Um, I have a lot to say on this. So I think, first and foremost, uh, social media has been around since the early 2000s, and it has virtually been unregulated in terms of protection for kids uh, around content can't be moderated because of it's actually protected by the First Amendment. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, we, the government should make people remove content like that actually can't happen. That's up to the platform themselves. And so I, I think that we're in this interesting place in society in our world where and unlike many of the other crises like the environmental crisis, there are, are very there are very specific factors that play into the way that this technology has control over our psyche. And a lot of that is in the way that it's designed in the infrastructure. We have design rules for bridges. We have design rules for homes. We have design rules for cars. Yet we have virtually almost zero control over the place that the average teen is spending eight hours a day. Mm. And the implications of this are grand, but we are at a point in our world and I just, you know, want to be rea- the, re- the realist here. I've been in the space for seven years. The reason why there are not companies are not changing these things is because we are the products and the more time yeah. that they have from us, we are in the attention economy. Our time is worth money. So they have no incentive to reduce the amount of time we're spending on their platforms for anything other than nice PR um, and feel good points. And so personally, I believe that like any other thing, like a speeding ticket, (laughs) um, the tech companies need to have some sort of financial incentive to actually make these changes. And so the social media duty to children act was an act that ultimately would force tech platforms to not use addictive algorithms against minors and leverage the tools that they have internally, their neuroscientists to, ensure that that was the case. And it was a grueling few months, lots of lobbying, lots of testifying, and we made it all the way through and without any no votes, which is pretty unheard of. And then what happened is they silently killed the bill in appropriations. And what's really interesting is that they did pass another bill that's great that we were, that we were working on, which is really basically around children's privacy. But what's unfortunate is that I think what the government tried to do was to kill AB 2408 so that, and pass this other bill to make it seem like they were really taking action. And that bill is really Mm -hmm. just around not using children's privacy, which I think is critical and we need to do not use their data and sell it, but it's not, the privacy problem is not going to solve the addiction problem. And so what we're working on now is how do we come back next year a repropose new legislation and build out a whole strategy for that. Wow. 
Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that that happened because I, I felt so inspired that they, you know, it passed and you know, well, it was moving it's forward. it's actually um, it's actually very positive. Um, and the reason okay. why is because a lot of bills take. I mean, we made it to the finish line basically. Yeah. So to get killed in appropriations is usually because of like some sort of financial implication, and the government and technology mm. are very interwoven. There's a lot of yeah. politics around that, and politics is called politics for a reason. And yeah there's so much behind the scenes that I've learned and I have a lot of hope, but I also, you know, there's just certain interests that people are trying to protect. And a lot of times in politics, their personal interests, um, more so than even public interests. So I think that's just the world we're living in. And that's why I always like to say at half the story, we need to continue to do the work from the bottom up and the top down, um, because it's not going to happen without really those two worlds coming together. A thousand percent. Yeah. That's our mission at technically spiritual too. like, let's become aware of all the things that are going on, that it's not completely our fault. The way that these things are designed can pull you in, like I said, underneath consciousness. But in the meantime, you know, before some of these things change from the top down, cause that often takes years or decades. Yeah. Um, let's figure out the tools that we need to navigate and continue to adjust them as the world changes. Um, I get, I can get really angry about some of the government stuff too. Cause you know, you, you just sort of see it like clearly like Facebook is not the best choice to create laws about what Facebook should and should not be doing. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. like why, why is that even, you know, it's like a, to, you know, that I feel like to, on the outside, it's like, it's very clear. Um, like, why are you giving them the, the choice to create their own laws about how their company works? Like, that's not really going to work guys. But you know, that all being said, like there's us, there's the government, and then there's the companies themselves. Um, and I feel like, like you said, if there's, there's not that many incentives for them to do better, they're probably not going to change. But we have seen with companies like Pinterest, for example, they've been super supportive to, to mental health and they've implemented really interesting programs like redirect your energy. Have you seen their latest campaign? No, I haven't. So they have a whole campaign about doom scrolling and basically how they want to get people offline and to do things in the world. And you know, I think for them, like it's just an executive priority. The priorities at the top yeah. uh, ultimately permeate through an organization, and that they've made it really clear that that's like top priority for them. Yeah, it does give me hope. It does give me hope that there are good people in some of these companies, you know, that are recognizing what's going on. Um, that are doing their best to implement changes. You know, we've seen like, you know, the whistleblower came out in Facebook. There's like, you know, there's people that I feel like it's not like everybody that works in these organizations are horrible people sitting there like evil gremlins. Like that's not really yeah. what's going on. It's just, yeah, it's generally like these these higher incentives, particularly centered around money. But to what extent as a society are we going to choose money over mental health? Like, I think we're at a place now where it's like, we cannot be doing that anymore. Like we've been doing that for centuries and it needs to stop now. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, unfortunately I think, (laughs) I don't know what it's going to take to get our world to really change. And I think there's a lot of awareness, but we still have a long road to go in terms of action. Yeah, absolutely. I want to broaden the conversation a little bit. 
because I think people in lower income communities in the U.S., people in developing nations tend to use their phones more and tend to really have to rely on them for everything. Like there are some countries where Facebook is the internet. Like that's just the way that it goes there. Um, you know, their smartphones is really the only access that they have. And some say that, you know, self-care practices or digital detoxing or like some of these things that we're talking about is just, it's only for those that have the privilege to do so or have the resources to do so. So as we're having these conversations about digital well-being, how do you think that we can continue to include global communities who might not have as many resources? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think like the nutrition divide, the digital divide, you know, we are so quick to assume that, um, that this does not impact everyone. And I think for the work that we've been doing, especially working with kids in underserved areas and places, you know, to your point, they are using their devices more. So my POV on it is that, okay, these people are using their devices more. So of course they're more susceptible to having these mental health issues, which they already are as a culture anyways, why would we just disinclude them from this and, you know, write them off in that way? And so I think for us, what we want to do is bridge that gap between digital equity and digital wellness and not just say, Hey, here are the tools you need, but here's the way to use the tools in a way that works for you. Similarly to, um, you know, even food deserts, right? Like just because you're giving someone food doesn't mean it's good food. Doesn't mean that they know how to like use that to help them take care of themselves, all sorts of those things. I think on a global level, uh, there are challenges that are different for every country. And I think, you know, digital well-being means something different in the same way that well-being means something different and all different, you know, from America and, and beyond. Right. And, and we're a very, very privileged nation as a whole, um, and, and have the ability to, to really think about how do we build the space through the lens of inclusion. Um, but I think is to me, I think personally, we can't look at the mental health crisis of youth without looking at the role that technology plays in it. Um, just given, you know, some of the stats and things that we were looking at earlier. And I think it's up to us as the leaders in this and as the nonprofits to, build a new paradigm for a path forward. And I think, you know, and I'm the first one to say this is like, I'm not going to be for everyone and half the story isn't going to be for everyone. And, you know, if you have another cause that you feel like is more pressing and important to you, then by all means go solve it and do it. Um, but I think like we as a society can't discount the role that digital well being will play and will continue to play. And we have to be in the space of prevention. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I feel like as a human, there are so many things that I care about, so many things that I, you know, want to do and organizations I want to join and problems I want to solve. But I really do feel like this one is the lead domino to yeah. to a degree because it's like if if we don't have the attention span if we don't have the emotional capacity for connection and compassion, um, there's not much else we're going to really be able to do. If we're just all isolated in our own little bubbles um, without the emotional resources to, to connect, we can't, we can't band like the humans, the way that we've gotten through is that, you know, banding together to solve problems together. 
Right. And if, if we're in this place of like ultra division and isolation, it can't happen. So we have to really like bring us together first. Absolutely. I, I Absolutely. feel like digital well-being is that first step. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think like we can't, we can't disregard that. Like if we can't have human meaningful human connections, then there's, you know, very few things that we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're, we're coming to the end. I want to, I know that you're a futurist. Um, and I think about the future a lot myself and, you know, in many ways we're already starting to move beyond social media. We're moving beyond these like web two issues and we're, we're, even though we haven't, you know, fixed these problems at all. Um, but we have to look ahead, right? We have to look to the future. We have to even look at web three, the metaverse, all these things. How do you see some of these issues carrying over? What do you think we need to do to enforce digital well-being in those spaces? And maybe you can start by just talking about web, what Web3 is for some folks that are, you know, getting from Yeah. There. So I think, you know, the world that we've been living in is this Web2 world where the social media platforms have the monopoly. They're the ones in control of privacy, security, and monitoring. We're moving into a world of Web3, which is decentralizing that control. So we as individual leaders can create our own platforms and communities that ultimately takes away the power from monopolies and put them puts them into the hands of people. And it's interesting because to your point, digital well-being, I actually think in a lot of ways might be more heightened in digital in Web3 with the rise of NFTs and, and all of these different things we're engaging in. Um, because it's such a competitive always on culture in web three, and it requires this constant digital engagement. And Mm. I think the challenge is, is that, you know, we can barely rely on our monopolies to take control of this. And it puts a lot of pressure on we, the people as the creators and the consumers to create those spaces and we'll see what happens. But that's one piece. I think also thinking about the metaverse, I mean, to me, Going from 2D to 3D means, you know, heightening these experiences in the world. And, you know, one of our neuroscientist advisors did a recent study just on the impact that the metaverse had on youth mental health. And the results are what you would think. In fact, it is not good to be behind uh, the goggles all day immersed in this other universe. And I think it begs a lot of questions about what is um, inclusion look like? What is, um, you know, what, what policies will be in place to support people. I mean, the best way to think about this is, or, or, or thing to kind of a way that I like to describe this is like in web two, we're comparing ourselves to the bodies of women on Instagram in web three or in not even web three and web three slash the metaverse. We have the ability to actually reshape our bodies in these virtual worlds. And to me, that's, you know, almost scarier than just looking at yourself in comparison to actually walk around with the ability to be skinnier and to, you know, basically be this like walking avatar is quite, quite disturbing. So there's a lot that we're going to have to figure out in terms of, um, ethics. Mm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It opens up a whole, it's almost like black mirror in real life. And some of those, some of those things that, you know, come up with, with robots and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's like, it felt almost far away, but now it really feels like it's gotten closer to that sort of black mirror world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we're living in it. Let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's been such a pleasure having these conversations. I feel like I could talk to you for days, days um, and weeks, and hours. But I know, I'm, like I could just, yeah, <laughs> we have I'm to come really, to a, a close. I'm at some really, point. really excited about what you're doing, and I just really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. I think um, this space is growing, and but we're still very much so at the beginning of this, and it's really important to get the word out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have any? final advice or words for listeners that might be struggling with their mental health and their, yeah. their social media use? I would say, uh, start and end your day screen free. Try to get yourself an analog alarm clock to make that space that you always know you can count on because in the digital world we're living in, it's a lot harder to carve that time out during the day, but before you go to bed and after you wake up is a really important time to nurture your, nurture your mind. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and where can, where can folks find you online or follow along or get involved if they want to? Yeah. So you can get involved at halfthestoryproject.org. Uh, you can also, if you want to share your story, you can follow us at half the story on social media or living like Lars, which is my own personal. I love to be in touch with people that are passionate about this movement and I'm just really grateful, um, and excited about what the future holds. Me too. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for for sharing your wisdom with the Technically Spiritual community. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. It's truly an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you follow along with podcasts. It really does help. And again, if you're part of a team or a company that could use some digital well-being within your organization, please reach out via technicallyspiritual.com slash contact. And I would love to be of service to you and your organization. Thank you again for taking the time to be here. And I hope you have a great rest of your day.